have your place here in Ezekiel 22. If you can turn back to chapter 13 of the same book of the Bible, Ezekiel was a captivity prophet. We know that in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon completely destroyed the ancient city of Jerusalem. Uh, they were judged by God because they had forsaken the Lord. Prior to that fall, uh, God had sent many, many prophets to them over the years to warn them about impending judgment, to try to call them back uh, to righteousness. And there were some times, uh, like in the, the days of Isaiah, uh, kings like Josiah, it looked like the nation was going to turn back, uh, but then uh, they would just make that veer to the other, uh, to the left, if you will, and they'd go back to their old ways and things got uh, worse and worse till finally God had to judge them. But before that final captivity in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had invaded the land two prior times to that. Uh, somewhere around the year 600 BC, uh, he came and uh, besieged the city for a very short time. And uh, he took away all of the children of the nobles, uh, took many of the, the, uh, the sons who, of the king and the princes of Judah. Uh, Daniel, the prophet, was a child and he was carried away during that time. Uh, and they were hostages. They were Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, you need to obey me. You need to do what I tell you. I've got your children. And uh, that seemed to work for a while, but the, the, the kings just kept stiffening their necks and hardening their hearts against both the Lord and Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar swept through the land a second time, uh, somewhere around 595 BC, and uh, he took away the craftsmen. Uh, the, the smiths, the, the people that were skilled in farming and carpentry, things like that. And he took another wave of captives uh, from Israel into Babylon. And Ezekiel the prophet was carried away with that group. Jeremiah was the last of the prophets in the city of Jerusalem when it fell. He was the last voice of, of, of God, if you will, telling those people there's still time. If you will but turn from your wicked ways, you will find the mercy of God. And of course, they refuse to listen and the rest is now history for us. So that kind of gives us an idea of who Ezekiel was. When Ezekiel prophesied and penned the words of the book of Ezekiel, he was not in the land of Judah. He was not in Jerusalem. He was in uh, uh, regions of the uh, Babylonian territories. He was a captive, um, and he lived in a, sort of a refugee center, that type of thing. Um, his freedom was gone, and uh, he was... He was charged with the task of preaching to people that had a habit of not listening to God. And uh, it was, he had a hard ministry. Uh, like Jeremiah, there aren't, there aren't any recorded converts of Ezekiel. Uh, it seemed like his, his preaching fell on deaf ears. But there were a couple of times that as, as uh, the Lord spoke through him and gave him messages to say that God used uh, 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 the same imagery twice for them. The first time it appears is in chapter 13. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy. And say thou unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, hear ye the word of the Lord. So this message is to the preachers of the day. And sadly, they were false prophets. They were, he said, they were prophesying out of their own hearts. 
their messages were pretty much summed up as, look, uh, we are the chosen people of God. Uh, we are Abraham's descendants, and therefore uh, God's not going to let anything bad ever happen to us. And Jerusalem uh, is the holy city, and the temple of Solomon is there, and, and God will never let anything happen to it. And there was no call to repentance. It was sort of a feel-good prosperity type thing. And it was a false preaching because men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and now Ezekiel were telling these people, you need to get right with God or God's going to bring judgment upon you. It is to these prophets or these preachers that this message in chapter 13 is written. Thus saith the Lord God, verse 3, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen vanity. That means emptiness and lying divination. They're preaching falsehoods, saying the Lord saith, and the Lord hath not sent them. They have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. So this entire chapter is a condemnation upon the false preachers. It is in verse number five that there's a, an imagery that is given to them. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. The imagery is that of a battlefield. And uh, there, there's, they had lines of, of uh, you know, skirmish lines and so forth. And, and they had various troops stationed at, at different parts of the, the battle. And those front lines were very, very important. Uh, they, they were the ones that, that needed to hold if the front lines lost their footing uh, in any way. Uh, it would allow the enemy to come charging in. I need some men just to help me uh, with this just a little bit. Brother Tim, can I get you to come stand over here? David, can I get you to stand here? Ronnie, can you stand right in the middle? And um, you, you, uh, Cantino, <laughs> senior moment. I'm sorry, Andrew, would you stand over there? Ryan, could you stand over here? Um, and, and we'll just use, spread out you two in the middle just a little bit there. All right. Um, these are the front lines, okay? And their job is to not let any of the enemy get through. Uh, that is what they're supposed to do. Now, the enemy's desire is to try to take one of these positions out. If they can do that, they're going to make a gap. This, this is called a hedge. That's what uh, Ezekiel's referring to. This is the hedge. Uh, and right now they're, they're standing there and they're defending their place. Uh, but let's say the enemy can get David Charles out. David, just sit down in the front row for a moment. Uh, David's out. All of a sudden you got this big gap. Well, Tim's got to hold his line here and, and, and uh, um, um, Ronnie's got to uh, hold his position there. But the enemy can come pouring in this way and uh, th there's, there's a hole there. Okay, now David, I want you to stand there. Here's, here's this part of the illustration. You're going to be the people of Israel. Okay, you're going to be the people of Israel. These are going to be the preachers. They're going to be the prophets that are being written to. Their job is to proclaim God's word to the people of Israel. And for sake of illustration, please forgive me on this, I'll represent the Lord. Okay, they are supposed to hear the word of the Lord and give that to the people of God. But as we read in just a few verses in this chapter, that's not what they're doing. 
Um, they're, they're not giving uh, you the word of God, which is allowing the enemy to just continue to control them. And sin is getting worse and worse. They were committing uh, idolatry uh, in all forms. They were committing human sacrifice. These are the Jewish people, God's people. Uh, they were committing human sacrifice. Um, they, they were involved in witchcraft and seances and, and, and all types of abominations that uh, we, we wouldn't even discuss in decent society. And so what had happened, David Charles, can I get you to sit down again? The preacher failed and the enemy has a chance to get through and the people of God are suffering as a result of it. And that's why Jer or Ezekiel says, ye, the preachers, have not gone up into the gaps. There's nobody taking David's place. There's nobody there to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Um, and because of that, uh, you've not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. And God's people are going to lose that war because the preachers are not standing before the people for God. How many understand that? Okay, back to 22. David, can I get you to come here? And I want you five gentlemen, would you turn and face me now? Look at verse number 30. This is the Lord speaking. God says, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. There's that terminology, that skirmish line, and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. In chapter 13, God was looking for somebody to stand before the people on his behalf. That's the job of the preacher. By the way, it still is. It still is. And it's as, it's as important today that we as preachers uh, are, are true to the word of God and we're not preaching a false gospel or a false Christianity. Uh, this this uh, live any way you want, do anything you want because we're all under grace, God doesn't care is a false teaching. And uh, we, gotta, we gotta preach the Bible, we gotta preach the whole counsel of God because as a pastor, I stand before you for God. Everybody understand that? But that's not the terminology of chapter 22 and verse 30. He's not looking for a man who will stand before uh, the people for God. He's looking for someone who would stand before him for the people. Um, in chapter 13, he's looking for preachers. In chapter 22, he's looking for prayers. He's looking for some men that would stand and, and come before God on behalf of all of the people of God. God said, and I sought for a man. Just, just, just one person that'll pray. Just, just one that would do that for me. And would stand in the gap, that would make up the hedge before me for the land. And God said, but I found none. What had happened was uh, the people that were supposed to pray would you just all go back to your seats? They were nowhere to be found. It's, it's an amazing statement. God said, I just, I, I sought for a man who would stand before me for the land, for the people of God, that I should not destroy the land. Just, just one person was gonna make the difference between Israel having a revival Israel having, having a reprieve, Israel receiving grace and mercy from God or destruction. 
God said, I just, I looked for just one person that would stand before me for the land, but I found none. But I found none. We're good in these day, day, this day and age in which we live for coming up with plans and programs. We're good at promoting. We're good at doing all kinds of things. But none of those ever change the nation. It's prayer that does it. And prayer is like a bygone thing. If we have a dinner, we'll have a giant crowd. If we have a prayer meeting, you almost hear crickets. Um, we, we fret and we complain and, and uh, we're, 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 we got master's degree and PhDs and that kind of behavior. But when it comes to praying, you know, 30 seconds and we're worn out and, and we don't have anything else left to say to God. And God said, I'm, I'm looking for a person. I'm looking for a person that'll stand before me for the land so that I, I shouldn't destroy it. But I wonder, is God saying the same thing now that he said then, but I found none? Turn in your Bibles uh, all the way back to the book of Genesis. I'm talking about the, the power of a, a single person who will go before God and intercede for other people. In Genesis chapter 18, The Lord is speaking with Abraham. And in verse 20, the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done according, uh, 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 altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. God said, I'm about to visit them. I'm about to visit them, and I'm going to deal with them based on what I see. And the men, these are the angels, turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So Abraham found out that these two cities are, are really on God's radar. Their wickedness has come to uh, God's attention. Um, and and uh, by the way, we still call the sin uh, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah sodomy. And God said, I'm going to destroy the city. But here's the thing. Abraham had family that lived there. His nephew Lot that he had raised almost as his own son had moved to Sodom. He shouldn't have, um, but, but he had an affinity for uh, the wealth and the glamour and all of that. Uh, Lot himself had risen to a place of prominence. He may have even been a political leader in the city of Sodom, but, but, uh, but Lot and his wife and his children uh, and his in-laws, we don't know if he had grandchildren or not, all lived there, and their city was marked for destruction. Look what Abraham did in verse 23. Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he's pleading. He doesn't want Lot and his family destroyed uh, there in that city. He said, Lord, if you can find 50 righteous people, will you please have mercy and withhold judgment? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure thou shalt lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he, that's the Lord, said, if I find there forty and five, 
I will not destroy it. Abraham's trying to do math in his mind and uh, he's thinking uh, 50 might be a lot in a place like Sodom to find 50 righteous. So he's, he's, he's going to the Lord again. How about if there's only 45 and God said, for 45, I won't destroy it. Verse 29, he spake unto him yet again and said, peradventure there shall be 40 found there. He said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he, Abraham, said unto him, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall 30 be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20 sake. You see that Abraham's being very persistent. He is so burdened about his family. And, and he's, he, he's just realizing that it's a wicked city. There, there, there's probably a very small minority of people there uh, that even remotely love God. And, and he wants to make sure that his family's as secure as possible. So he just keeps pleading with God for them. He's not about to give in. And he said, oh, Lord, uh, oh let not the Lord, verse 32, be angry. And I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And he went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham and Abraham returned unto his place. Abraham prayed, interceded with God from 50 all the way down to 10. Have you ever wondered why he stopped at 10? Well, if you do the math from the next chapter just a little bit, uh, we can sort of get sum up some things about uh, Lot and his family. Uh, Brother Tim, can you do the math for me? Okay, there was Lot and his wife. Okay, we know that he had two single daughters because they came out of the city with him. You good there? He's trying to do it all in his head and Lynn's saying, you better write it down. Uh, <laughs> oh, she's using her fingers. She, I've got 10 fingers, I can get there. Okay, so he's got, we know he's got two single daughters. Um, we know he's got at least two sons because the Bible uses the plural, so there's at least two sons. We know that he's got at least two married daughters because the Bible talks about his sons-in-law. How many do we have there? That's 10. I think Abraham stopped praying there because in his mind he thought, surely Lot has won his family to Christ. Sadly for Lot, he hadn't. He hadn't. God would have salvaged that whole city if there had been 10 righteous people there. I wonder if Abraham would have kept going and said, how about if there's one? Because he knew Lot. He knew Lot had made some poor decisions, but he knew Lot uh, knew the Lord. I, I wonder what had changed. But you understand that Abraham was changing the mind of God, just, just one man. He didn't have anybody joining with him in a prayer meeting. We know uh, that if two or three of, uh, of us shall touch, agree on anything, as we go to the Lord, we have the petitions we desired of him. Abraham didn't have anybody to pray with him. It was Abraham all by himself hearing about this, and his family was important enough to him to just keep interceding with God, bringing that number to the, down to where he thought, surely Lot's won his family to Christ, and God listened to him. One man who knew how to pray. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the, the written word of God for the first time in human history. In his absence, the people began to wonder what happened to him. They began to wonder if Moses had run off or maybe Moses died up there and they were left on their own. And they went to Moses' brother Aaron and said, up make us gods. 
Uh, we need some gods to guide us, and, and we, we just don't know what's going on with this Moses. And, and sadly, Aaron made them a golden calf, just like they had worshipped uh, when they were back in Egypt, among the gods of Egypt, and, and uh, all of this was going on. And, and look at verse 7, Exodus 32, the Lord said unto Moses, go get thee down, for thy people that thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it, have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. How quickly they forgot all that God did for them. They, they had crossed the Red Sea in a, in a miracle that we can only imagine what it must have been like. Um, they were already eating manna every day that God provided for them. They had seen all the, the plagues that God sent on Egypt and many of those plagues, uh, God separated the, the Israelites from the Egyptians and, and uh, while the Egyptians were, were, were in a darkness that, that no light could penetrate, the Bible said uh, in the Israelites' homes there, there, was, there was light and they had seen God do all that and now they've forsaken that God and they're worshiping a, a false God. The Lord said to the Moses, I have seen this people behold it is a stiff necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation God was so mad at them he said I'm going to wipe them out they were they were Abraham's descendants they were Isaac and Jacob's descendants and God had already done so much for them and God said I've had it I have absolutely had it with them. Uh, this is the way they've been from the moment you started speaking. Uh, uh, Moses, just let me alone. Stand back. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, and I'll make a new nation and fulfill my promise through you. In verse 11, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? I think it's interesting in verse 7, God tells Moses there that they are thy people. In, uh, in verse 11, Moses tells God, no, they're yours. Uh, neither, neither one wanted to claim uh, these people. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? God, if you, if you wipe them out, the Egyptians will think that you're a bad God. They'll think that you're an unfair God. They'll think that you're an unkind God. Uh, please don't do this. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And notice verse 14, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. The word evil there does not mean wickedness or sin. It means, a, it means God was about to do something very, uh, very unpleasant, very, uh, if you will, very harsh to them in response to their rebellion and their wickedness. The prayers of one man changed the mind of God. Um, understand the people are still down in the valley. The Bible says they've stripped off their clothes. They're naked. Their music is pounding. They're committing uh, immorality around this, this golden calf uh, and, and so forth. They have no idea that God wants to strike them dead. They have no idea that up on a mountain, there's one man having a prayer meeting all by himself. And that one man changed the, the mind of God they have no idea that they just got saved from utter destruction by the prayers of one man. Turn, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. 
Numbers 14 occurs several years, many, many years later. The Bible says in verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. They're standing at the Jordan River. The spies have been in there for 40 days spying out the land. They came back with the grapes of Eskel and the fruits of the land. And they said, man, it truly is a land that flows with milk and honey. But then 10 of those spies, the Bible says, brought up an evil report. Oh, but there's giants in there. Uh, the sons of Anak, and they have these great walled cities. And if we go in there, uh, we're going to be slaughtered. We can't, we can't defeat them. And uh, they are at the place God promised them. Uh, God's been taking care of them um, and, and, and so forth. And, and now they're just saying, we're going back to Egypt. We'd rather go back where all the unsaved people are. We had it much better there. They forgot that they were slaves in Egypt. And they're, they're, they want to go back and so forth. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. That means they tore their clothes uh, in anguish. They spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord did delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. I think it's sad as you walk through the Bible, as you walk through Bible history, those who truly believe in God, those who truly walk with God, those who truly grab a hold of, uh, of the promises of God by faith are always a minority. Here it's two out of 10. Here it is, it is three counting Moses out of an entire nation that still believe God will give them the land just like he promised. But all the congregation, verse 10, bade stone them with stones. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel, God showed up. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I've showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Do you realize it's the second time within a couple of decades, God said, I'm all done with these people. I'm going to smite them this time with pestilence. They're going to die, and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, that thy cloud standeth over them, that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou kill all this people as one man... Then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering. That means he puts up with us for a very long time. And of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, of the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, 
And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt until now, and the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. For the second time, one praying man saved his nation. There's power in prayer that we have yet begun to tap. There is power in prayer that can move the heart of God when we are unable by our own means to move the heart of man. It is an incredible thing. Abraham moved the power of God to grant mercy if there were but 10 righteous. He changed God's mind. Moses moved the mind of God on more than one occasion. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. And once you're there, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. May I remind you that when Paul penned these words to Timothy, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. He was the first of the Roman emperors to begin persecution against this new group of people that were called Christians. Um, he was the one that, that would tie them to poles, like a, we would call it a telephone pole, wrapped in an animal skin, soaked in oil, and set them ablaze to light, uh, give light to his outdoor banquets in the evening. He was the one that, that uh, began the, the habit of feeding them uh, alive to lions, of sending them out to be slaughtered by gladiators just for the sport of the people. That was the king of the world, and, and, and Nero's example was influencing leaders uh, with, within the Roman Empire all around the world, and that was happening in arenas all over the, the ancient world. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, this is the priority, number one on your list, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. He's saying, pray for him. Pray for him. Paul would eventually give the gospel to Nero. Nero would reject it, and uh, Paul would die a martyr's death in the Colosseum with Nero looking on. History says that when, when uh, the, the executioner looked up to the emperor to see whether the emperor would give leniency or not, that the, the emperor gave a thumbs down. And Paul was executed. He was beheaded uh, in the arena. Nero uh, laughed at, at, at all of that. But I, I want to remind you that 2,000 years later, we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. Think about that just for a moment. Um, God has a way of evening the score on those things. But it's that Paul that says, pray for kings, for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. First of all, priority that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. God said, I'm looking for somebody, just one person, that will stand before me um, stand before me for the land that I shouldn't destroy it. I'm, I'm just looking for a man that'll stand here and pray for the country. Our nation has been drifting away from God for decades. What we're seeing today is, is uh, not entirely new. It is just the consequences of the direction it chose years and years ago. Um, and and we're, we're seeing it escalate. But do you understand 
that uh, the fact that we're still here means that there's still opportunity for mercy. There's still a God in heaven. There's still people out there that'll get saved. I wonder if God's saying, is there anybody that still believes in prayer? So we got the idea that the Republicans or Donald Trump or whoever gets the nomination is going to save our country. No, only God's going to save our country. Only God's going to save our country. You see, we, we don't want to think like that, but that's unbiblical thinking. God's looking for somebody to pray. Can he find someone? Can he find someone? Uh, I, I, I have other things on here, but I wrote down some questions here. If the nation's future, by the way, the nation's going to include what happens to our children and our grandchildren. My mother-in-law, who went to heaven a couple of months ago, her and I would try to call her uh, every week or so just to see how she was doing. And, um, and uh, every conversation that I had uh, would go just to the events that were in the world today. And she wasn't uh, a devout Christian. She, we'd, we'd, she eventually did get saved. Uh, but she was of a very conservative kind of old school background and she just saw all the nonsense and the wickedness going on in our world. And she said, I'm not scared for myself. She had COPD. She said, I know I'm not long for this world. She, knows she said, I know I'm going to be in heaven shortly. She said, but I'm, a, I'm afraid for my grandchildren. She said, I'm, I'm afraid about the world that they're growing up in. I, I was holding Wesley the other day and I, I, I'm his favorite, and uh, he's, he's four and a half, almost five months old now, and, and uh, he was sort of chattering with me, and he was smiling real big and drooling all over me and all of that, and when, when I hold him, and I'm, I'm always talking to him and, and so on and so forth, tell him how much I love him, how much God loves him, and so forth, but I'm almost always at the same time praying for him, and I just beg God, not only that someday he'll understand the gospel and get saved, but I pray that God would spare the world that he lives in. Because you see, if, if, if we let our country continue to go, um, Christians are going to be going to jail. They already are. Our freedoms are already being whittled away. And I'm all for politics. I'm all for voting. I'm all, I'm all for believers running for office if that's what God wants them to do. But the answer is not in the White House. It's in the church house. It's prayer. In 1857, America had gone through uh, what we would call a depression, and uh, it was sort of trying to find its way back. And there was a man named James Lamphere from the city of New York, the Big Apple, that was so very, very burdened about the decadence that was already a part of mainstream life in New York City. He was a member of the old Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan, and he had a burden, and he decided that, that he wanted to start a prayer meeting. It was going to be a noontime prayer meeting. Uh, he asked the pastor, he said, can I have a room in the church to pray at lunchtime? He said, I'll put up handbills around uh, the neighborhood and, and see if we can get some people to come in and, and the pastor to invite uh, the church people uh, and let them know that it was going to be there. And they announced a prayer meeting for a given day. And when noon showed up, James Lamphere was the only one there to pray. None of the other members of the church were there. Nobody responded to the handbills, and he was, he was disheartened and because uh, he, he, he just thought, we, we just got to pray. We're, we're going in the wrong direction. And uh, he, he prayed for him, uh, by himself for a little while, and about 12.30, the door opened, and, and a few more people came in. I believe there were six 
uh, people counting him that, that finally showed up for the prayer meeting on the first day. New York wasn't a city of eight million like it is today, but it was a city uh, of multiplied tens, if not hundreds of thousands by that time. And so a handful of people had a prayer meeting. They decided they would meet again the next day and they would pray and uh, they invited some friends and the prayer meeting grew and there was a larger group the next day and they began doing that every day at noon. This group of people would meet and they would pray. Pretty soon, uh, they began to fill up the room and the, the preacher gave them another room and uh, they didn't do a lot of talking. They didn't, there, there, wasn't, uh, there really wasn't a lot of preaching. They were together to pray. Sometimes they would sing a, a gospel hymn of some type and they would, they would might maybe share a prayer request uh, and sometimes one person would lead in prayer and others would just be people around the room. They would be praying. Uh, they, they tried to let the Lord lead in that thing. It started in 1857. By, the, by 1860, there were over 10,000 people in the city of New York that were meeting every day at noon to pray. During the outbreak of the Civil War that started in 1861, it is said that through the, the impact of the prayer revival that started in 1857, that 150,000 Confederate soldiers were converted to Christianity. There are stories that came from the battlefield uh, of, of entire units uh, that a chaplain would stand up and begin to preach and, and the entire units would fall to their knees and cry out to the God of heaven for mercy and, and claim Christ as their savior. Um, there were reports, um, and, and I, I've read them in many different uh, places, of ships coming into the harbor, whereas they were coming into New York Harbor uh, to, to come to the docks to unload, that suddenly there would become a great stillness on board that ship. And the men uh, that worked on the ships, uh, many of the passengers there, would suddenly find themselves on their knees and they weren't exactly sure why, but they just felt this overwhelming desire that they needed to get right with God and cry out to the God of heaven. Prayer is real. You do understand that. Uh, God spared his people through the power of prayer. Uh, prayer got Paul and Silas out of prison. Uh, they prayed and sang praises until midnight. Uh, and, and, and prayer is what brought about the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people got saved and baptized and added to the church. The early church was known for the, the power of their prayer meetings. The, uh, the prayer revival of 1857 went on for decades and decades. The last the last organized official meeting of the prayer revival that started in 1857 ended in 1961. In 1962, the Supreme Court of the United States outlawed prayer and Bible reading in public schools. In 1973, the, the Supreme Court legalized abortion and over the next 50 years, millions and millions and millions of infants were slaughtered. It is amazing what happened when they stopped praying. Prayer withholds the, the judgment of Almighty God and prayer also brings the blessing of Almighty God. If our nation's future depends on your prayer life, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? If our church's future depends on your prayer life, Is this church headed for revival or barrenness? I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, there are a group of people sitting all around here who two and a half decades or so ago thought that this church was doomed. They didn't see any human way that it was gonna survive 
what was transpiring. But there were a bunch of people that learned how to pray. And they got good at it. And everything we've enjoyed now is because those people prayed. Does this church have a future based on your prayer life? I know you're counting on me to pray. But why isn't God able to count on you to pray? Is your family going to be okay because of your prayer life? Do your kids hear you complaining more than they hear you praying? Criticizing more than they hear you invoking the name of the God of heaven? How are you, what about it? I'm talking my grandchildren now. Your friends. We, we had testimonies of coworkers leading people to Christ. Many of you, that was your story. Uh, or a friend led you to Christ or somebody invited you to church. Your friends, are they, do, they, do they even have a chance based on your prayer life or not? God said, I'm searching for someone who will stand before me for the land. And he hadn't changed. He does not change. So when he looks down in this place, does he find anybody and says, you can count on me? Father in heaven.